It's our privilege this morning to read from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the living word of God for us today. Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, When you hear the words black box, what may come to mind are those flight recorders that they search for after an airplane goes down that tells them all the information about the last moments, what happened to that plane. I have a different kind of black box for you this morning. Underneath this black box, there is uh, something that I will show you before the message is done. Uh, I actually think it's something very significant. No exaggeration, it's worth you coming today. You'll be glad you are here if there no other reason to see what is underneath my black box. And uh, I wanna give you some clues so you can be thinking about it while I preach. The first clue is this. Under this black box, there is something simple, yet it is profound. You think you know what it is? Let me keep going. Under the black box, it is something small, yet remarkably grand. It is something for our time, but not for now. And last clue, it is something you can hold, but never possess. As you're thinking about that, I honestly want to encourage you that everything I say between now and then, leading up to the moment that I reveal to you what is underneath that box, everything I say is building up to that moment. In the meantime, since we need something else to do, let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. You can go ahead and open your Bibles. If you have your Colossians journal, which I hope many of you have been able to keep up with, we are on page 8 in that journal. You can go ahead and turn there. If you have a copy of God's Word, open it up as well. I hope you have a pen or a pencil with you handy. If not, maybe someone near you you can borrow one from. We're going to be marking up the text as we typically have. So whether you have your Bible out or your journal out, you're going to have a chance to mark it up. I'll I'll give you some prompts as we go through that. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, boy, uh, we're still in chapter one. We've been at this for some time, and uh, and that's exactly right. I I, I counted it up yesterday, and this is the ninth week of Colossians, and uh, here we are in this chapter. I'll give you one promise today. I'm not going to promise that we're going to close out chapter one because that's actually going to be Lloyd's task next week. He'll finish chapter one. But my promise today is we will turn the page. (laughs) Some of you are losing space on the right-hand side to fill out more notes. We were going to turn the page today. In fact, our text 24 to 27 kind of does a page break in the journal. The four verses that Dan read to you are complex. If you were paying attention particularly in that first verse, verse 24, you should have thought, what in the world does that mean? I don't know that I've ever heard that before. These verses are complex, but they're wonderful. In these four verses are two key ideas. Each one centers on a key word. So that's the way I'll teach through the text. I'm gonna unpack a key word that'll unlock and explain what this is all about. And then there's some wonderful application for us. And at some point in time, I might just show you what is under the black box. Now, 
Let me give you a bit of context. In verse 23, which Lloyd covered last week, Paul has just declared himself to be a servant of the gospel. In fact, if you glance back up at verse 23, I'll just pick up at the end of that verse. Paul's writing, which has been proclaimed. He's talking about the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's the context that we're gonna step into this line of thought in. Now, minister, you hear that today. The first thing that comes to your mind is what I'm doing today or maybe, you know, depending on your background, you think about someone with a black robe and a white collar. That's not the kind of minister that Paul was talking about. It's just a Greek word that means servant. Paul is a servant of the gospel. And by the way, in this context, Paul and, and Rob and Lloyd are, are not in a separate category from you, you see, as, as a minister. You are a minister. You are a servant. If you are someone who is, by faith, come to the knowledge of life in Jesus Christ, if you have been rescued, if you've been saved, you are also a minister or a servant of the gospel. And we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like this morning. Now, verse 24, as I mentioned, is complex. In fact, I'm convinced it's the most difficult to interpret verse in the book of Colossians. Um, we're gonna dive in it. We're not gonna shy away from it. We're gonna go right there. In fact, I'm gonna spend much more time on verse 24 than I will on the other verses because not only is it hard to understand, but once you get it, once you really figure out what Paul is going after here, there's some amazing application for us that unlocks on this. We just have to do a little bit of, of work. So roll up your sleeves, so to speak, and let's dive into this verse. I'm going to reread just verse 24, and then we'll talk about it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. All right, we're gonna mark this up. The first thing we're gonna do, as you recall, is we're gonna put a box around every direct reference to Jesus Christ in this letter. Some of you may have already done that. So you'll see, we'll go ahead and put that on the screen. It's at the very bottom right there. There's a direct reference uh, to Jesus. And, and just as a reminder, um, they're loaded through. The whole book has 63 direct references to Jesus. There's only 95 verses. So uh, more often than not, two-thirds of the time, there's a direct reference, at least one, in every verse of Colossians to Jesus Christ. Now, the biggest challenge in this verse is no doubt what in the world did Paul mean when he said, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It, it sounds a little like heresy, honestly, when you first read it. And of course, it's not. Now, we'll get to that little puzzle in a minute, but that's not the only puzzling phrase in verse 24. I want to start with the very first phrase. Look at what Paul says right out the get-go. I rejoice in my sufferings. Joy and suffering, those are two words that don't go together very often, particularly in our cultural context. In fact, if you were to just do a poll out there, how do you define joy? How do you find happiness? How do you define contentment? No one's gonna say it's in suffering. In fact, we're gonna define it culturally as the absence of suffering, as far away from suffering as I can, uh, as I can possibly get. Convenience, comfort, this is how we're gonna try to define joy and happiness. Paul is defining it very, very differently, and that, that should kind of Pique your curiosity. Um, don't forget, Paul was literally suffering when he wrote these words. He was in chains. And it's interesting, he doesn't mention that until the very end of the letter. In chapter four, he's gonna talk about the reminding them that he's in their chains. Now, they knew that, but Paul doesn't talk about that a whole lot. He's not trying to play the martyr here, but he knows that they know his condition and he's wanting to let them know, listen, I'm rejoicing in these sufferings. Now, if you're like me, I, I have a little bit of a cynical streak to me sometimes and I read a phrase like that and I think, 
that's just the, the apostle like sounding like an apostle. Like, that's just the religious guy using religious language. I rejoice in my sufferings. He, he can't actually be serious. And so we have to dig in and ask ourselves, is Paul really serious or is he just putting on a happy face for the sake of the church? Well, let's talk about suffering. And in particular, I wanna talk about the nuance, the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about here. Uh, and sufferings, in the plural, which is how it is written in our text, is our first key word. So I wanna invite you to go ahead and circle that word suffering. We'll do it on the screen as well so you can follow along. Circle that word sufferings and let's talk about it. Dig into this word, a bit of a word study. Now, biblically speaking, when you hear the word suffering or sufferings, typically you're gonna think of one of two things two categories for this. The, the first category is kind of the generic life is hard suffering. And we can all identify with that. Life is hard. Aging, disease, loss, relational brokenness, illnesses, um, financial struggles. I mean, just sometimes getting out of bed, you know, emotional, mental struggles. We all know what this kind of suffering is life. I, I just kind of call it life is hard. I don't mean that snarky. It is Life is hard. As long as we're in a broken, fallen creation, life will continue to be hard. There will be suffering to stay under, to endure. That's not the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about in this particular context. It's not to diminish it at all. And it's not to say that you can't rejoice even in those kinds of sufferings. That is a sermon for a different day. But that's not the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about. There's another category, biblical sufferings, you read about a lot, especially in the New Testament, especially in the epistles. And in the context here is the people of God were being persecuted for their faith. It was not safe to proclaim the name of Jesus in this cultural context. And it wasn't just the Romans that were persecuting them. It was the religious Jews that were persecuting them as well. And this was not the kind of like, you know, religious persecution that, that you and I might, might sort of experience today of people just looking down on us or assuming things about us because of our faith. No, this was literal physical persecution. This is why the church had been scattered from Jerusalem. Christians were being put to death. Christians were being killed in, in uh, agonizing, torturous ways. Uh, and this is another type of suffering. Now, there's no question that Paul was experiencing this kind of suffer, suffering and did throughout his uh, ministry life. But there is more going on here even than that. I'll, I'll say it this way. The kind of suffering Paul was enduring was this um, persecution of the faith kind of suffering. But, but it's more specific than that. The reason that we know that is the phrase that follows. Look, look at the very words right after the key word sufferings, for your sake. He's saying, I, not just I'm suffering for God, I'm suffering for Jesus. He's saying, I'm suffering for you. He goes, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, that doesn't really make sense in light of the way that you and I tend to think about suffering. When you and I suffer, whether it's of the religious persecution kind, which we know very little of, mostly in our cultural context, or the life is hard kind, we usually don't think about I'm suffering for the sake of someone else. It's, it's normally just, okay, woe is me, I've got to endure through this. But Paul is saying, I'm suffering for your sake. Paul is talking about purposeful suffering for the sake of other people. 
and in particular for the sake of the body of Christ. This is what Paul is talking about. So this starts to kind of get us there. Purposeful suffering. Not just life is hard suffering. It's not just religious persecution suffering. Think of it as servant suffering. Well, what does that mean, servant suffering? It, it means playing the role of the servant, taking on the mantle of the servant, carrying the, the servant towel for other people. And, and honestly, if you think about what real service entails, it, it means a form of suffering. Maybe not physical pain all the time when you serve other people, but you're giving up something for the sake of other people. You could be on the couch. You could be watching your favorite television show. You could be going out making more money. Instead, you're trading some of that to serve someone else. You see, there is a form of suffering that is involved in that. Now, with that in mind, this kind of servant suffering, I'm trading something where, where I'm, I'm experiencing less, seemingly, because I'm choosing to serve you, with that in mind, the rest of the verse starts to make a little more sense. Let's pick it back up. Verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's how far we've gotten so far. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Okay, now let's get into the controversial phrase. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What in the world is he talking about? The first thing you must know is he is not talking about anything lacking in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that which we call the atonement, right? The, the, the taking the weight of the sins of the world, past, present, future, on his shoulders and paying the price for our sins. That's the atonement. Paul is not talking that, that there's anything lacking in that kind of a suffering. How do, how do we know? Number one, many places in the rest of Paul's writing, he makes it clear that you cannot add anything to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So he'd be directly conflicting. He'd be directly contradicting himself if he were to make that argument here. But the second reason we know that that's not where he's going is the Greek word that's translated afflictions. See that on there? Christ's afflictions is never used of Christ's suffering on the cross. It's never used in that context. So Paul is clearly talking about something else here. And I just wanna say this very clearly in case there's any question in this. The work of Christ on the cross is fully sufficient for salvation. Fully sufficient for your justification to make you right before God. There's nothing that can be added to it. So what is Paul talking about? You know, this is where I read a ton of commentaries this week, you know, and I, I can geek out about this kind of stuff and I have fun with it, but, but I'm telling you what, scholars have knocked themselves out on this verse. I mean, whole volumes of work have been written on this. And there's a couple schools of thought that, to be honest with you, could, could be valid, could be legitimate. Let me share with you, after doing quite a bit of research, the one that I find most convincing based on the evidence. Here it is. What is lacking refers to what still must be endured by the body of Christ prior to Christ's return. Let me explain what this means. The Bible talks about an age to come when Christ returns, an age to come that will be very different than the age we're living in now. Think of it as the new age to come and the current age, or sometimes called the old age, is where we still are today. Uh, the age to come will be characterized by no pain, no suffering, no death. The age right now obviously has all those things. We've got suffering, we've got pain, we've got death. 
Now, we tend to think of the two ages as side by side. As we're in this one, Christ's gonna come and immediately we're gonna get into this one. Actually, if you really read your scripture and really dig in and study it, it's really better described as the two ages overlap a little bit. Well, have you ever thought about when Jesus arrives on the scene? This is before his death, before his resurrection. He's just starting his ministry. He, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. <laughs> he uses the word at hand, but that could be translated, it's, it's here. Well, what did he mean the kingdom of heaven is here? You know, that was 2,000 years ago and we're still in this old age. There, there is an overlap that Jesus describes that Paul describes as well. Now, the new age was inaugurated with Jesus' resurrection. In fact, you make a case, it really began with his, with his arrival and the king shows up on earth. It was inaugurated truly at his resurrection, but until he returns, death is still our reality. The creation still groans, Romans chapter eight, and there is still work to be done in this place where the two kingdoms overlap. What kind of work still is to be done? the kind of work Jesus did, the work of Christ, pouring out our lives for people to point them to the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus did. Maybe as simple as I could possibly say it, Jesus poured out his life for people to point them to the good news of the kingdom of God in him. That's what Jesus did. That's the work that's given to us in this church era, which is the era that the, the two kingdoms overlap, if you can kind of see it this way. Uh, there is still servant suffering to be done in order to embody the servant love of Jesus for the people around us so that they might be reconciled to God. Do you realize that as the church, we are tasked with the exact same work that Jesus came to earth to do? Now, not the substitutionary atonement work, that can only be done by him. But the proclamation of the kingdom, the laying down our lives, the servant suffering to point people to true life in Jesus, help them find wholehearted life in him, that's a servant kind of work. That is, it will entail suffering. It must, it is the way of Jesus. This is the work he commissioned his followers to continue when he ascended into heaven. And this is why we are called the body of Jesus the hands, the feet. He's the head, we're the body that's living out his purpose, his mission, continuing his work. So with that in mind, and I hope you're tracking through this logically. I, I know this gets kind of layers, but it's worth it. So with that in mind, how is Paul filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? He is continuing Christ's work as Christ is now at the right hand of the Father, but Paul and the rest of the body of Christ continues on earth to continue the work. Not atonement work, but loving other people to the point of sacrifice in order to embody God's love for them and point them to new life in Jesus. That was exactly what he was doing for the Colossians. It's exactly what got him in chains and he's finding joy in the work. Let me give you a little illustration because I know this is kind of a lot to take in. Uh, a month ago or so, my family and I got invited to go to a fundraising event for Barefoot Republic, which is one of our local partners. It's a beautiful event. It was outdoors under a big tent. And it was one of those days where it had been really warm. And then just, you know, by God's grace, it was a perfect, gorgeous fall evening. 
But as a consequence of the weather turning a little bit, we had not dressed our three daughters appropriately for the event. So they're in these nice sundresses. It starts out warm. By the time we get into the, you know, the, the, the boring fundraising part, this is from their perspective. It was great from our perspective. They are shivering. Now, I'm sitting a couple seats over, you know, and I see my daughter shivering. And of course, what, what, is, what is a good chivalrous guy going to do? You know, I, I take off my jacket and I hand it to one of my daughters. You know, I see her face. She just lights up. She's like, oh, thank you, daddy. And she puts on the jacket. Now, a, a little bit later, you know, now I'm kind of shivering a bit. And she says, but daddy, you're so cold. You know what my response was to her? I said, I don't even feel it. I, I was glad to give her my jacket, you see. Now, this is a silly little example, uh, but, but I was rejoicing in my sufferings for her sake. It's because I love her. It was a joy to pour out my, my self for her. Okay, it wasn't a huge sacrifice, but you, you get the idea. Now, I think... Um, I was reading through a bunch of translations, which, by the way, Bible study tip, you know, if you don't have time to, to dive deep into some of the commentaries, when you, when you get to a verse that's puzzling, first tip you should do is read it in as many other translations as possible, because every English translation is simply an attempt at interpreting this in our language in a way that, that we can understand intellectually. Does that make sense? So I read through all these other translations, and they're very helpful. I got to a paraphrase called The Message. Many of you have heard of this by Eugene Peterson. It's wonderful. I mean, it's not designed for, you know, in-depth Bible study, but it's wonderful sometimes to give you a really clear idea of what the text is saying. Listen to what Peter Peterson wrote as he paraphrased verse 24. He nails it, in my opinion. And I could have just started with this and would have saved us 10 minutes, but I thought the other part would be interesting. Um, but listen to what Peterson says. I want you to know how glad I am that it's me sitting here in this jail and not you. There's a lot of suffering to be entered into in this world. The kind of suffering Christ takes on. And by the way, we are Christ now, his body on earth, so to speak. I welcome the chance to take my share in the church's part of that suffering. Isn't that clear? Isn't that well explained? Now, I believe this concept, I'm gonna spend a couple more minutes here because again, this is key word number one, key idea number one, and we've only got one left. I believe this is something we have lost in modern Christianity, this idea of servant suffering. We've lost this. Um, I want you to hear this. I believe a significant part of the church's God-given vocation is suffering for other people. Now, some of you hear that, and the word itself, I know, is visceral, and it's kind of like, oh, I understand servant, but I don't know that I understand suffering. Don't think about suffering just for the sake of suffering. We're not talking about, you know, like beating our, our backs with whips. No, 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 none, none of that. But suffering for the mission of Christ, pouring ourselves out in love for other people, because we really believe they need life. We really believe they, they need Christ, you see. The earliest Christians lived this out distinctively. It's what they were known for. Uh, when mass illness swept through ancient cities, guess who it was that stayed behind to, to stay with the sick people and risk, and many even, even it cost them their own lives as they were infected by the disease, while the, while the rest of the population fled? It was the Christians. It was the Christians who later on in our history started hospitals. <laughs> Did you know that idea came from Christians? 
The Christians that engaged with people that the rest of the society did not care about because the rest of the society had no use for them. Historically, it has been Christians that have stepped in and filled that gap. Not exclusively, but largely, largely historically, as Christians have led the way. Go, go read the history books. You'll, you'll find this to be true. That sounds like Jesus to me. Our vocation as members of the body of Christ is to lay down our lives in service of others in order to bring others to life. And that includes proclamation, yes. It also includes embodying the love of Christ for them. Jesus did both. And we must do both. We must be willing to be servant sufferers for the sake of other people. As you read the life of Christ through the Gospels, you cannot miss the fact that this is what Jesus gave his attention to. What more profound way can we imitate him? If you believe anything Jesus said, you must believe, and, and here's for some of you where I, where I hope this will start coming to life for you, you must believe that this is the path to joy. That you know, Jesus said there's, there's fullness of life in trading your life for the sake of the mission of Christ and the sake of other people. There's, that's where life actually is, laying down your life for others. This is what Jesus said. This is what Paul was embodying. And if you want to know the secret to Paul's joy, why he could say, I rejoice in my sufferings, it's because he was following Jesus in this particular way. Now, quick disclaimer. Paul is not talking about the kind of um, emotionally unhealthy service that goes something like this. Fine, I will serve you because that's what I do. But where are my needs? Where's my voice? Now, you know, that, that kind of service, that kind, that kind of attitude is not the kind of healthy service suffering service that Jesus was talking about. By the way, when you serve with a heart that's sort of tangled up like that, you're not actually serving other people. You're indebting other people to you in your own mind. That's actually what's going on here. Now, Jesus and Paul are talking about service and suffering that are motivated by love. Love of Christ first, love of others second. Sound like the great commandment? Yes, it does. Here's the key. You cannot do this unless and until you have been transformed by Jesus from the inside out. Otherwise, it will just be the me-oriented, woe is me kind of suffering, I guess I have to, but there's no joy in it kind of service. And we are all susceptible to that. I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. Until you've been transformed from the inside out by Christ in you, you will never be able to serve like Jesus or serve like Paul. That takes us to the second key idea. How am I doing on time? Not very well. All right. Let me pick it up with the end of verse 24 and then get into 25 because there's a lot of, of, of wonderful things here. End of 24. For the sake of his body, that is the church, 25, of which I became a minister, servant, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make known, to make the word of God fully known. Pause right there for just a second. Paul's describing his commissioning as an apostle to the Gentiles. His audience was primarily Gentile. The goal of his commission is to make the word of God fully known by teaching it and living it, embodying it, illustrating it for them which is exactly what got him arrested. 
Okay, do you see how this is all starting to click in? It's like, I'm starting to make sense now. Now let's go on to the last two verses and and this is where we're gonna find our second key idea. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, if, if you hadn't done it yet, verse 27 has a direct reference to Jesus. Put a box around the word Christ right there toward the end. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We'll, we'll illustrate that on the screen as well. Next, we're gonna find our second key word of our text, which is mystery. So sufferings was the first, mystery is the second. Put a circle around that. You'll find it showing up in verse 26 and then again in verse 27. So two instances of mystery, circle those. Now let's talk about what this word means. In this context, it is not a puzzle that God wants us to solve or a riddle to unravel. It's not some kind of religious secret that only insiders have access to, like, you know, welcome to the club, you know, here's the password. It's nothing like that. Paul is using this word to mean something that was hidden. It was a mystery for ages and generations, but is now out in the open. It is now revealed. It was a mystery, but now God has revealed it to the saints. The saints, by the way, simply followers of Jesus. That's all that means. So if you've got a Catholic background or some other place, when you hear that word saints in scripture, don't think of those, you know, iconography that you've seen around. Paul's talking about all believers in Jesus. That includes you and me. We are saints through faith in Christ. So mystery simply means something that was hidden, but has now been revealed. Kind of like what's under this box has been hidden. Should I? Should I? You're not yet ready. Now, throughout scripture, we see a principle that we call progressive revelation. You don't get the unveiling at the very beginning. It doesn't happen that way. You don't start the message saying, hey, look what's under this box. It's this slow revelation. You get some hints, you get some clues throughout the way. Um, Back in Genesis 12, think of it this way. The one true God made himself known to a man named Abram. You know, Abram was, it was from Ur, you know, modern day Iraq, all right? Wasn't anyone special. He was probably worshiping other gods just as his father and grandfather and great-great-grandfather had, but, but God chose him and, and he comes to Abram. He says, listen, I'm gonna make your family into a great nation. I'm gonna reveal myself to you through you, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites knew that someday the one true God, there was only one God and they knew it, he was gonna reveal himself to the Gentiles. He was gonna redeem the Gentiles. All the nations will be blessed through the one nation, through Abram who became Abraham and his family. But how would it happen? That's the mystery. Here's what they knew, Old Testament. They knew the particular presence of God was at the tabernacle or later at the temple. How was God gonna reveal his presence to all the nations? Was, were they all gonna come to Jerusalem? What, maybe it was, the, was the, uh, the Holy of Holies and the altar gonna go on a traveling tour like a museum exhibit, you know, spend some time in Greece, spend some time in Rome, spend some time in the Near East and then, you know, or the Far East and then come back to Jerusalem. How was God going to restore his kingdom to Israel and redeem the nations? That was the mystery. Hidden for ages and generations. Here's the answer, Paul says. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember, he's writing primarily to Gentiles. Do you know what I'm saying? 
Christ is a Greek word translating the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah is the Jewish king that was gonna come and reestablish the kingdom of God. And so Paul is saying, oh my goodness, God's plan all along was that God himself, as the second person of the Trinity, would, would come to earth, would, would put flesh on, would live the life that, that the Hebrew people nor any other people could ever live following the Father, would die a sacrificial death as the one and only atoning death for all of our sins and would be raised up to new life and then would bring about the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the New Testament in places describes it as, to indwell us, Christ in you, Christ in us, even Gentiles. Now this was no small piece of news. This changed everything. This little phrase, Christ in you, is different than what Paul normally uses to talk about essentially the same concept. He usually uses the word in Christ, not Christ in you, as we are in Christ. And so let's illustrate this a little bit. If you were here last week, go ahead and play this illustration. Uh, last week, Lloyd spent some time, you know, Dr Lloyd drew fantastic stuff on that uh, whiteboard. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back. Go, go ahead and start this little uh, video illustration if we have it. So there is a crown, as Lloyd drew last week, and there is a person inside the crown. That represents... We are in Christ. In fact, we're gonna write that above. You are in Christ. Paul usually uses that phrase, but this time he's using another phrase. He's saying it a different way. So we're gonna illustrate that this way. There you are, and now there's the crown or Christ in you. We're gonna write that above too. Christ in you. Now, which is it? You are in Christ or Christ is in you? Which one is it? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And you are in Christ and Christ is in you. What's the big idea here? Union with Jesus. This is what the phrase, the hope of glory, is all about. Is there any glory in you alone, apart in your flesh, apart from the indwelling spirit of Jesus Christ? The answer is no. I didn't get a lot of response from that, so I'll just tell you. No, there's no glory in me apart from the Spirit. There's no glory in you and your flesh. I mean, there, there's a sense that we're made in the image of God and there's a certain dimmed glory from that and fallen, our fallen humanity. But the glory that is in us, men and women, followers of Jesus Christ, is Christ in us. It's referring to the oneness with God that A, we have to look forward to in the new kingdom, but B, something we have access to right now. Uh, I want to read you a little something. I, I uh, asked my aunt, uh, I have Aunt Sherry, who lives in California. She's technically my second cousin or I don't know, but she's about my parents' age. And I had a chance to see her at a funeral a month ago. Hadn't seen her in a long time. And I asked Aunt Sherry, uh, share the story of how you came to Christ. And she shared the story and how she started growing in Christ. And she mentioned this verse. She said when she was a teenager, she came across this verse, Colossians 1 verse 27, that talked about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, I, and, and it was marvelous what she said about that. So I emailed her this week and I said, would you mind writing to me what you said about this verse? And I want to read what she wrote back. Listen, listen to this. This is from the perspective of a teenager, an older lady now retelling her story as a teenager. Christ in you, the hope of glory, became precious to me as a promise that with Christ in my life, my life would have glory on it. 
More than the promise of glorification when I go to be with the Lord in heaven, the hope of glory is the assurance that my life is so much bigger than my small bumbling. With Christ in me, his presence is a visible reality in my life that sometimes breaks out and makes me look and act like Jesus. Christ in me, the hope of glory, raises my expectations for my life, having value far beyond what I bring to the table. I am a piece of God's glory in this world and becoming more so. I am a piece of God's glory in this world and becoming more so. Do you believe that? In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then literally several verses later, Paul says, and Jesus Christ dwells in you. There's glory to that. Therefore, what my Aunt Sherry is saying is there is no insignificant life, nor is there meaningless living when you are filled with the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the king. Now, are you ready? Are you ready? All right, you're ready. All right, here we go. The mystery revealed. Some of you say, it's only communion. (laughs) Only communion. Men and women, the body of Christ the blood of Christ for you to eat and drink. You see what this represents? You take it inside of you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And there's nothing mystical or magical about these wafers and this grape juice. It represents, it points to something greater than itself. It is a symbol and yet what a symbol. I want to ask our ushers if they would go ahead and get in position, get ready to pass the elements. You don't need to start passing them yet. I want to say a few more things first, but I want to invite the ushers to prepare to pass the elements. Now, I want to read to you a few things that I wrote as I thought about communion in light of this text that we have just walked through this morning. And I want you to dial into this Think of this as I walk you through some key moments in Old Testament history that longed for the very event that you are about to taste. Since the Garden of Eden, human beings have been searching for a way to re-enter intimate relationship with God. To be with him in a profound way. To know him Since the time of Abraham, the Hebrew people have been wondering, how would God fulfill his promise to bless and redeem all nations through Abraham's descendants? Since the time of Moses, the people of God have been gathering around festival tables to eat bread and drink wine, all that pointed to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And then there was that moment around the table the night Jesus was arrested where he said, it is now time for the mystery to be revealed. Take my body and eat. Take my blood and drink. Christ, me, Jesus would say, 
for you, me, in you, so that you may have the hope of glory.